We're continuing both a Foundations series that we're going through that we've been on for several weeks now, and we're also doing part two of a lesson that we started last week called The New Covenant of Love. The New Covenant of Love. We had a lot of text, and we didn't get to it all, so we're going to try to do our best to get to the rest of it today. If you weren't there for that last session, that last um, Bible study that we did, I really encourage you to check that out because you're going to have a much better picture of the whole story then, and we're going to get to part two today, and there's no way that I can review all of that again today. So if you haven't checked that out, you can go on our website and find that. If you need any help, let us know. But we're going to do part two today, the new covenant of love. Before we get there, though, I'm going to quiz you guys. That seemed to go well last week. Yeah, I like to quiz you guys, because usually when I'm on stage here, I'm the one on the hot seat, right? I'm going to turn that around today. It's going to be fun. Don't worry. No stress. For those who might know, anyone who good at music trivia? Anyone out there good at music trivia? Someone's pointing at somebody back there. No, my husband's a musician. Oh, your husband's a musician. No pressure today, sir. I'm going to ask you, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you lyrics from 10 love songs. And I want you to let me know who sang those lyrics, okay? Some of these are going to date you, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry at the same time. And I want, I want you to just listen to the lyric, not listen, I'm not going to play it, I want you to see the lyric, and then I want you to let me know who sang these lyrics, okay? Let's start off easy. <laughs> okay, now listen, listen to the lyric. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Is that strange to anybody else? I put that at a Valentine's Day card for Janine once, and it didn't work. She didn't know what I meant, and I didn't know what I meant. But who sang that? Who sang that lyric? The Carpenters, I heard it. Very good, okay. nice. We're working, we're working our way up to the hard ones, okay? Number two, who sang this? You've lost that love and feeling, now it's gone, 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 whoa, whoa. I heard it. Someone say it out loud. The Righteous Brothers, okay. Keep your own score, okay? And be honest. Keep your own score. Anyone two for two so far? Monica, all right. Everyone else fall out already. All right, let's do another one. Who sang this? I will do anything for love. But I won't do that. Who is it? Meatloaf. The musician or the food, I'm not sure, but Meatloaf sang that song. Nobody knows what that lyric means either, and that's probably a good thing. How about this one? Don't tell my heart, my achy, breaky heart. I just don't think he'd understand. What is it? I couldn't even get it out. Who is it? Billy Ray Cyrus. There we go. Check that out. Now, for guys like me, I'm pretty jealous of that hair. It's pretty awesome. But yes, he's saying achy, breaky heart. Let's keep going here. I'm all out of love. What am I without you? Oh, my goodness. Okay, maybe you guys are going to get all of these. I thought some of these would be challenging. Say it again. Who is it? Air supply. Let's keep rocking that good hair. Look at that. Yeah. That's what you call a man perm. Nice job, air supply. All right, let's keep going. We'll love forever, knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. Say it. You got the last name. What's the first name? Peter Cetera. Nice job. Anyone remember that guy? Peter Cetera? Yeah. I think that was the Karate Kid theme. Yes. Was it? Okay. Here's one. Once upon a time, I was falling in love. Now I'm only falling apart. Who is it? My goodness. Okay. I, I got to finish the lyric. There's nothing I could say, a total eclipse of the heart. I didn't know who this was, honestly. I had no idea who this lady was. Yeah, there's another good hair. 
Hair was a good thing back in the 80s and 90s. Um, let's keep going. Wouldn't you agree, baby, you and me got a groovy kind of love. Now, that's deep. Guys, that's deep. I don't know. Who sang that song? This guy does not have good hair. This guy has Pastor Todd hair. There's a little hint for you. Anybody? You're struck out on this one. Say it. Phil Collins. There we go. There's some Pastor Todd hair for you. Not all musicians have good hairs. How about this one? I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. Who said it? I heard it. I heard it. The Proclaimers. I think they're Scottish or Irish. You guys remember that song in the 80s? All right, one more, one more. Let's end on a strong note here. <laughs> I sometimes see you pass outside my door. Hello. Is it me you're looking for? <laughs> Let's end on some strong hair again, okay? You got the mustache and the strong hair. How many, well, how many got more than five? Monica? You're the only one? All right. Okay, we got some work to do. I didn't get hardly any of those. I mean, these were lyrics I'd heard before, but I didn't know who sang these songs either. So we're going to transition today because we're obviously not going to talk about cheesy love songs. That's not the point. We're going to talk about a very profound look at love because there's someone else who said something profound about love, and he said this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who said that? Our Lord said that. And now we're going to transition to what we're calling the New Covenant of Love, the New Covenant of Love Part 2. If you have your notes, now I left notes on the table out there. I don't know how many of you got them. Maybe we can hand them out if anyone would like notes. Maybe some of our guys back there can hand those notes out. And we're going to take some notes today. We're going to do our best to get through the material today. But last week, if you were here, we talked about the New Covenant of Love and what is it. And we spent most of our time just really showing what it is from Scripture and contrasting it with the Old Covenant. We're not going to do that today. We spent a lot of time on that. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the practical side of the New Covenant. How do we get into it? How do we keep it? And what's the point of it? That's where we're going today, the New Covenant of love. If you remember, the Lord built it this way. And I want to stress this, that although the Old Covenant was insufficient, the Old Covenant was not bad. God cannot create anything bad. I want to make that distinction, okay? Insufficient and bad are different things. God could not create anything bad or evil. But God did create the Old, Testament, the Old Covenant excuse me, to be insufficient. Let me give you an example. Let's say you come to my house and you're very, very thirsty. And I give you just a little sampling of water. Okay, just a little bit to wet your whistle. Would it be bad, the water I gave you? No, the water would be fine at the Walker home. But it would be insufficient. It wouldn't take care of the enormous thirst that you have. That's kind of what the Old Covenant was like. The Old Covenant was not bad. The Old Covenant was designed to be insufficient. And we talked about why that is, why God would build it that way, because everything was going to direct us to the new, to the better covenant, to the better covenant of love, because we needed help to appreciate that better covenant. And God knew that. He knew our frame. He knew that we were dust. He knew that we needed something to draw our attention to that new covenant. So he allowed his people to go through the Old Covenant and experience the insufficiencies that had. But he also told them this in the Old Testament. Something new was coming. Something new was coming. I want to remind you of this passage from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37. The prophet says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It's not like that. It's a different covenant. It's a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Where was the old covenant written? On two tablet stones. God took that law and he, he etched it within our hearts. So that we know the Lord, law of the Lord inside of us, not just by reading two tablets. It says, and I will be their God and they will be, be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. <clears throat> and that's an intimacy, Okay. That's not just a knowledge up here. That is a knowledge of intimacy that we can have with the Lord. He says you won't have to be instructed to know the Lord. Once you are in this new covenant, you will all know me intimately. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity permanently. And I will remember their sin no more. Aren't you thankful for the new covenant? That sin that we have committed, that sin that we've done against our God, he takes that sin and he removes it. As far as the east is from the west, he remembers it no more. Our God does not bring that up. He does not hang it over our heads. He does not use it as guilt and shame against us. He remembers it. And that is what the new covenant is drawing us to. So just as a reminder, I want to show you some of the contrast between the old covenant and and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, again, was designed to be this way. Okay? Obviously, the people broke it because it was an insufficient covenant. But it's a shadow versus a substance. It wasn't the reality. It was sort of showing what the reality was going to look like one day. It was temporal versus eternal. This system had to be done annually. Every year, the high priest would have to go into the, the tabernacle and forgive the sins of the people with the blood of bulls and goats. As we mentioned, he wrote the law on stones, tablets of stones, now it's written upon our hearts. It was guided by the law of sin and death, a law that we could not live up to. 613 commandments, we'll come back to that. Versus the new covenant, which is two great commandments, and we'll come back to that as well. The old covenant has many insufficient sacrifices, sacrifices of animals that could never take away the sins of the people. All they could do is forgive it for a time. Blood of animals versus blood of Jesus. And an old covenant could never save anybody. And the new covenant saves absolutely. There's many more contrasts that we could bring up. But that gives you a sampling of the difference between the old and the new covenant. Here's our question today. is If we understand how great the new covenant is, how do we enter into it? How do we get into that new covenant? And we're going to end on a very strong positive note, hopefully, if the Lord helps us, to understand why we should enter into it. But I want to look at this today. How do we get into the new covenant? Is it very complex? Is it very hard to get into God's covenant and receive all of these blessings that God had designed? The answer is no. I found this quote from Charles Hodge. He was a theologian in the 1800s. He said this. He said, the gospel is so simple and that small children can understand it. And it's so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. Amen? 
And the gospel is how you get in to the new covenant. God designed it to be a simple process to get into his covenant, so much so that children can get into the new covenant. In fact, I would say at least half of my children have entered the new covenant by faith, placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And God designed it that way. It's kind of like an ocean. Many of you have been in the ocean, right? Getting into the ocean is a very simple process. Children can do it. You can walk right into the ocean. There's a shore that brings it up. It's a very gradual place to go into most oceans. But obviously, the ocean is vast, deep, wide, broad, and complex. And you can spend your entire life exploring the Pacific Ocean and not even scratch the surface. Isn't that true? But getting into the ocean is very, very simple. And I think it's a good parallel analogy for the New Covenant. And this is how God has designed it. How do we enter into this new covenant? It's very simple. You believe in Jesus. And you're baptized. Now I want to make a distinction. I don't believe baptism saves a person. I believe simple faith in Jesus saves a person. That's why I believe God has designed it so that even the thief on the cross, dying, could evidence faith in Jesus Christ and in a moment be saved and be cleansed of his sins. So I, don't, I want to make the distinction that I don't think the moment you're baptized is the moment you're saved and born again. I think it's the moment you place that belief and trust in Jesus Christ. From your sins, your sins are washed away, cleansed before the eyes of God, and you are new, you are brand new by simple belief and faith in Jesus Christ. But baptism is important because it's sort of the proclamation, the declaration that you are in the new covenant and you want to be, and you're not ashamed of it, and you're letting God and everyone know that you are willing to abide by the terms of the new covenant. I want to show you this from Scripture. Let's look at the first one. Acts 16. If you remember this passage in Acts, it's a very profound passage. Paul and Silas get arrested for teaching the gospel. And they're in jail, and they're singing hymns. They've been beaten and tortured, and they're locked up in these shackles. But they're singing, just like we did before. They're singing hymns and praising God, and all of a sudden, an earthquake. God causes an earthquake to break open the doors of the jail and the, sh the shackles break right off of Paul and Silas and all the jailers are suddenly free in a moment. And the jailer who's taking care of these guys is very concerned because he was watching over these people. And now all of these people, their shackles are gone, they're able to walk out and leave the jail cell and he's ready to kill himself. He brings out his sword ready to kill himself because he knows what's going to happen to him if it's found out that they, got, they were let out under his watch. But Paul and Silas remain. They don't leave the jail cell at that moment. And they let this man know that they're not here for his harm, but for his good. And when he realizes that they're there under the name of love and Jesus Christ, he says to them, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's so enamored by that act of love that they show him. He says, show me as well. What do I do to be saved? And look what they say in reply to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. See how simple it is, jailer? You don't need to go to school or seminary. You don't need to study these 10 books. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the Savior, the Messiah of the world, and you will be saved. And let your whole household know the very same thing. That must have been a powerful thing to experience for Paul and Silas. For the jailer that was washing over them to make sure they didn't escape and in a moment for him to change teams from against Christ to with Christ in a moment. That's how profound and simple God has made the gospel. 
But it's also true that baptism is important because we find that right in Scripture as well from the very same book. If you rewind a few chapters, Peter is giving a sermon. And he's giving a sermon to the very same people that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, when Jesus was standing before them. And Pilate asked them, do you want, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they said, we want Barabbas. And he said, what should I do with Jesus? Christ. And they said, crucify him. Peter now has a chance to speak to these people and, and share with them the message of the gospel. And so he does for several verses. He shares with them the message of the profound gospel of Jesus Christ and says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We're in danger. We're in great danger. We crucified the Messiah of Jesus, the Messiah of God. What shall we do? And Peter's response is this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Peter adding on there? No, he's not. Because repentance is the same thing as evidencing faith in Jesus Christ. It's turning around. If you remember the jailer, he did that right there in the jail cell. He went from against Christ to with Christ. He simply repented. I changed my mind and my heart on who this Jesus is, I turn away from my sin. I embrace Jesus by faith. That is simple belief and faith in Jesus Christ. But then Peter also said this. He says, be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's highly debated whether or not you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit prior to baptism. I say you do. But it's honestly highly debated in the Word of God whether that happens before or after you're baptized. But I believe it happens the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. I don't think God withholds his Holy Spirit during that, during that period between your salvation and your baptism. But I also believe that God's word stands true even in this passage. That every single one of us, if we desire to be part of the new covenant of God, should be baptized. Because baptism is an outward symbol and proclamation of an inward reality, is it not? When you're baptized, you are lowered below the water and you're brought out immediately. And there's nothing special in that water, okay? We're not talking about a physical cleansing or even an inward cleansing at that moment. We are talking about something that has already transpired. When the Holy Spirit came into your soul, he kicked the devil out, right? And the devil is no longer at the reign of your heart and your mind and your soul any longer. And now the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life and your soul. And when someone is baptized, that symbol is very profound. To say to God, to themselves, and to everyone who's witnessing it. I'm his, and he's mine. And I want everyone to know that I belong to him, and I will follow him for the remainder of my life. That's what baptism is. And it's so profound that God built it into the new covenant to say, that's what I want. I want you to evidence faith in Jesus, and I want you to be baptized. Because that's powerful, and that's a good representation of our love to the Lord. It's similar, not the same, but it's similar to when we say our marriage vows to our spouse. I made my intentions to Janine. I made it aware to her in the fall of 2008, but we did not get married till the summer of 2009. And in the summer of 2009, I said my vows to Janine that I will love her no matter what. Sickness, health, riches, poor, for better or worse, as long as we both shall live. Baptism is similar to that. It's saying to the world and to God himself, I am yours and I desire to be part of this new covenant for the remainder of my life. And it's powerful. And if any of those sitting here amongst us have not been baptized, I highly encourage you to consider that today. 
And if you need help understanding what it is or taking care of that really profound act, please come and speak to us because baptism is really important. And for those who have been baptized, I know you remember that day. That's a day of, of a blessed act of saying yes to Jesus Christ. I will follow you, Jesus. And the word of God says, you are then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Have you been sealed? Have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Because we're going to come back to that, how important and profound that sealing is. Because this new covenant is sealed with God's promises. And that sealing is going to mean something very important that we're going to end on. But the way you receive that sealing is from obeying God by placing your trust and faith in Jesus and by baptizing in the name of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. How we enter into the covenant is very simple, but it's different than how do we keep it, okay? These are two different questions, and we're going to now answer the question, how do we keep it? Because it's so simple, a child could get into the new covenant, and many children do. But it's so complex and so vast that to keep the new covenant will take us the remainder of our lives exploring that question right there. How do I best keep the new covenant? Look at your Bible. 66 books of really profound, deep, vast truth. And although many of us sitting here today are already saved, we are still exploring this one question. Lord, how do I best obey you? How do I best follow you? How do I best keep this new covenant of love? And I will tell you today, we will not be able to answer this question sufficiently in these few minutes we have here today. So I would encourage you to keep reading your Bible, keep studying the Word of God, keep coming to church, because we will explore that answer for the rest of our lives. But I love the Lord, because although it's just like an ocean, it's deep and it's vast, and it will take the rest of our lives to even scratch the surface. It's also very simple. Did you know every covenant has terms to it? Every covenant has terms. And if it doesn't have terms, it's not a covenant. Let's use marriage as an example. If I told Janine that I wanted to get married to her, and then we stood before a church and an audience of a couple hundred people and said no vows to each other and made no claims of love to each other and literally said to each other, we can do whatever we want in this thing with no rules at all. Okay? We can be intimate with whoever we want. We can live anywhere we want. We don't even have to like each other. Is that a covenant? Of course not. That's what you call a weird open relationship. But a covenant is an agreement. We talked about this last week. It's a two-way agreement, a two-way promise. And there are terms with every covenant. So you won't be surprised that God's covenant of love comes with terms. But as I mentioned before, they're very simple terms. Two things. One we looked at already. A couple weeks ago, we talked about fearing God. Fearing God is not so much something you do. It's just something that's part of your nature. It's something that's so obvious that when you get to know God, you fear God because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of what he's able to do. Every single person who knows God will fear God. And if you don't fear God, there's something wrong because God has designed it that way. And that fear is very, very good for us. If you didn't take a look at that lesson, please go back and listen to that lesson as well. But fearing God is very profound and helpful for the Christian. But once you fear God, and every Christian, true Christian, will fear God, Keeping the covenant is simply obey his commandments. Obey his commandments. Find out what his commandments are and spend the rest of your life following them. Isn't that simple? 
commandments. I'm going to give you a list of commandments, and if you abide by these lists and this, this, these rules, then you are abiding by the terms of the new covenant. But the question that I have when I understand that concept is this. And we'll get to here in a little bit, but look at this, what Ecclesiastes 12 says. We looked at this from King Solomon. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I can summarize the entire book of Ecclesiastes in one simple phrase. In fact, I can summarize the entire mind of God and will of God in one simple phrase. What is it, Solomon? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Isn't that simple? That's simple. That's not a 10-step process. That's a two-step process or a one-step process. Fear God and abide by his commandments. But here's the question for us today. What commandments? I have that question. I had that question for a bigger part of my life. What commandments am I supposed to abide by? I don't want anyone leaving here confused on that. If you remember the Great Commission, before we get to the specific commandments... Jesus had what he called the Great Commission. He was going to send his disciples out and he was going to tell them to do something because he was about to leave the earth. Jesus was about to be crucified, to raise again, and to ascend back to the Father. And he gave his disciples a task. And at the end of Matthew, he said this before he left them. He said, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has let me decide the terms to this new covenant. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Disciples is a little bit different than just converts. Okay? Disciples is just a little bit different than just those who believe with an academic mind frame. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And the word actually translates to followers of Jesus. Of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What's a disciple? A person who is baptized and a person who observes the commandments. That's what a disciple is. If you've ever heard that word disciple, that's what it means. It means follower, but what does follow mean? Because even that could be up to interpretation, going, I do follow Jesus. I come to church occasionally. And I read the Bible on a semi-regular basis. I do follow Jesus Christ. But Jesus himself describes disciple by simply stating this, baptized. Be baptized. And then observe all that I have commanded you. So let's talk today, what commandments is Jesus talking about? Because if you remember, the Old Covenant had a lot of commandments. Do you guys know how many? Does anyone know the number? Two. Two. Too many. Too many. Too, too many. <laughs> Most commentators believe that the Old Covenant had 613 commandments. Now, I do to-do lists, and I struggle with three or four things um, on my to-do list to get to all those in one day or sometimes even one week. The Old Covenant had 613 commandments by which to abide by. Now, does that sound oppressive? Does that sound intense? Because it's supposed to. And I want to let you know that that is not the commandments Jesus is talking about today. He is not talking about the ceremonial law and the laws of regulation and eating and, and feasts and things like that. That is not what Jesus is referring to because that is the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant has passed away and been replaced by the New Covenant. 
And some people think, well, since that's happened, there must be no law anymore. That since the old covenant is gone, the law went with it, therefore there is no law, therefore do whatever you want in the new covenant. Is that true? Of course not. It's not true. Because every covenant comes with terms. And this covenant comes with a specific declaration of obedience from Jesus Christ that we observe everything that he has commanded us to do. But again, what commandments? Well, most of you are probably thinking of the Ten Commandments. And you're right. You're right, because the Ten Commandments were different than the 613 commandments of the ceremonial law, okay? The 613 commandments, Moses wrote himself. God gave them to Moses, and Moses wrote them down for the people to observe. But the Ten Commandments, who wrote those? God himself. By the finger of God, he wrote the Ten Commandments. And then where did they place the tablets? The Ark of the Covenant. And that was God's symbol that these commandments that I'm giving you today are permanent and eternal. These commandments will never go away because this is the desire of our God for his people, to abide by these commandments. So the answer to the question could be the Ten Commandments, but it's actually a little bit deeper than that as I've explored it because I've asked this question. I have. I've asked this question when I was younger and I've asked this question when I was older. What commandments? Because there's a whole bunch of categories of commandments even in the New Testament. Did you know that? Well, Joltz gladly brought it up for us. We could be thinking of the two greatest commandments, which are what? Can someone help me out? What are the two greatest commandments God ever gave us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He says, upon these two commandments hangs the entire law of God. Okay? So two great commandments rule all of the commandments of God. So does that mean the Ten Commandments are no more? No, it doesn't. And we will explore why that is. But what about the teachings of Jesus? I mean, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the one we actually follow. And Jesus, when he was upon the earth, was teaching many, many times over. And in those sermons, he's giving a bunch of commandments. Is he inventing a new law, thereby making these two obsolete? No, he's not. And we will talk about why that is. And then you get to the rest of the New Testament, and it's written by people like Peter, James, John, Paul, and others. And guess what they're doing when they write their letters to the churches? They're teaching, and they're giving a bunch of commandments for us to observe. So what's going on here? Which commandments are we supposed to abide by as terms of this new covenant of love? And I'm going to help you because I think this helps me. I'm going to show you an arch. Okay, now anyone know what that is? That's the St. Louis arch. Anyone seen that up close? Yeah, is it, is it cool? Yeah, I've been up there. You've been up it? You can go up it. Okay. Well, I'm going to use this to sort of represent what I believe the commandments are all about, okay? As we know, there's two overarching commandments. There's why I chose the arch, okay? And I'm going to change the color here so we can see it better. But the number one commandment is, again, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment given to man. But Jesus said the second is like it. And what is it? Love your neighbor. Oops. He says the entire law hangs upon these two commandments. If you learn these two commandments, you learn it all. Isn't that beautiful? Two from 613 boiled down to two. And I think that's tremendously profound. Remember Jesus says, 
Follow me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he meant. I've given you 613 in the old, in the new I've given you two. My burden is light in comparison to the old covenant. But what about the Ten Commandments? Well, I believe the Ten Commandments fall underneath the two greatest commandments. And I can prove that to you. Because for those of us who know the Ten Commandments, think about it. What are the first three about? Have no other gods before me. Don't make anything with your hands and bow down and worship it. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. What are they about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are the last six about? Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Do not covet. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. It's all about love your neighbor as you love yourself. So even in the Ten Commandments, we find the two greatest commandments. And yes, I know I skipped one. I'm not bad at math. I know there's the fourth one, which is keep the Sabbath holy. And my... Did I just draw a Mickey Mouse there by accident? <laughs> That's accidental, okay? I did not mean to do that. But the Sabbath, my summary of the Sabbath is God simply saying to us, rest. Rest and get your strength to get back up and obey the greatest commandments of all time. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't rest, you will burn out. And that is a pastor telling a pastor that I need to take a day one of every seven days. I don't think it matters so much which day that is, but I need to have a Sabbath day that I pull away from my regular duties and I remember that I'm not the end-all, be-all of this church. And I let God watch over his church and I rest. And that doesn't mean I just do nothing on that day. I think that's a rest both spiritual and physical. Sometimes that means I get more into scripture or more into prayer or more with the body. But it's different than all the other days that are somewhat the grind and those Ten Commandments are simply my explanation of further explaining of the two greatest commandments. Okay? He's just elaborating on what those two greatest commandments are. And then you find the teachings of Jesus. Are they different than the Ten Commandments? No, they're not. If you remember what Jesus said, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit murder. But I say to you, to everyone who hates his brother has already committed murder in his heart. You've heard that it was said of those of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to everyone who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in her heart. What is Jesus doing with the Ten Commandments? He's explaining them. He's explaining those Ten Commandments so we can best know how to love our neighbor and how to love our Lord. Because... The Ten Commandments circle back to the two, which circles back to the one. And then you have the same thing with the New Testament writers. Are they making up their own law? Are they giving their own commandments? No, they're simply explaining the teachings of Jesus, which explain the Ten Commandments, which explain the two greatest commandments. Do you see how they all hold hands? How they all are about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But in that, I mean, people could interpret that a bunch of different ways. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. I will make up my own system for how I'm going to love God and love people. That would be bad. Therefore, we need Jesus to instruct us to how to love our Lord and how to love our neighbor. And thankfully, that's what the whole New Testament is about, explaining those two great commandments. So it's not adding on. It's not going back to the 613. It's taking two and explaining them and explaining them and explaining them. Here's another analogy for you. 
Um, if you've ever given a birthday card from Hallmark or something like that to someone you love, on the front will be a little bit of an explanation of what the card is about, okay? In this, in this example, we have a happy birthday card, okay? So someone who's getting that card can look at the front of the card and know that the person is wishing them a happy birthday. Well, most of us do not close up the envelope at that point, do we? And say, good, thanks. No, we open the card because generally inside of the card is a little bit more of an explanation of that, right? In this instance, it says, may your birthday be a joyful celebration of all that you are and all that you dream to be. What is it doing? Explaining. It's explaining the happy birthday. <laughs> Let me explain to you how I'm wishing you a happy birthday. And a lot of us will even write a little bit more on the other side of the card. Are we doing something different? No, we're simply elaborating on Hallmark's description of happy birthday in the front of the card. And then sometimes you'll even throw a little gift card or a little gift of money in there. And the whole system is holding hands. You get the point. It's all coming back to this one main theme, happy birthday. All of the commandments in the New Testament are all about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I find that tremendously a relief. That I don't have to look at 613 different things and abide by these massive lists. That if I miss them, I've broken the entire law. God says, keep two on your mind at all times. How do I best love my Lord? And how do I best love my neighbor? And if you need help to understand that, which we all do, listen to Jesus. Listen to the New Testament writers. They will show you how to best obey your God and best love your neighbor. But these are the terms of the New Covenant. If you remember, the New Covenant is an agreement. God agrees to do something for us. And what he agrees to do is be our God. In all the senses of what God is, he will take care of us. He will provide for us. He will protect us. He will love us. He will keep us. He will instruct us. He will do everything he has to for us to have the proper God that we need. God says, I will keep my covenant with you. But this is a relationship of commitment between God and his people. This is not supposed to be a walk in one day, I walk out the other day. Sadly, that's how many covenants are today. But a covenant that God has created is supposed to be a permanent coming together between God and his people. And once again, as a reminder, Jeremiah 31, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart, hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Do you see the covenant? Do you see the agreement? Do you see the terms coming together for God to say, I will love you, and the people say, I will love you, God. In this eternal relationship of commitment. Now, you might be sitting there today going, great, why wouldn't anyone do that? Why wouldn't everyone do that? If that's how we get God and eternal life and salvation and forgiveness and cleansing, why wouldn't every single person say yes to that new covenant of love? Why are there so many unbelievers out there? Why are so many people following their own whims and making their own rules when God's system boils down to two simple things? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's so easy a child can understand it. But then... Jesus, when he was walking upon the earth, had a bunch of people basically say this to him. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. No matter what you say, I'm there. No matter where you go, I'm there. And Jesus said, hold the phone. I know that's what you think today, but I'm going to say something to you today that's probably going to make my followers less. Did Jesus have to do it that way? No, I think he did that out of love. 
I think Jesus was going to tell these people, before you say yes to this thing, let me make sure you truly understand what you're getting into today. Although it's simple, it will require everything of you. In Luke 14, he had these great crowds accompanying Jesus. I want you to picture a really famous celebrity walking in the streets, okay? And people just start to gather and gather and gather around this person until the crowds are immense. So Jesus looked like he had this massive following, okay? Thousands and thousands of people saying yes to Jesus. And in this one instance in Luke 14, he turned to these crowds and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. What? Jesus, why would you do that? Why would you say that? Don't you imagine a big crowd of those people simply walking away after Jesus said that? A big crowd of people listening to Jesus. What's he going to say? What's Jesus going to turn and say to us? I'm so thankful you're here today. Thanks for coming. I know you're going to have a great wild ride following me. It's going to be better than you even imagine. It's not what Jesus says. He turns around and says, before you follow me, I want to make one thing clear. The love and the commitment you're going to have to have towards me is going to make all those other relationships in your life pale in comparison. The love that you will have, must have for Jesus Christ will make every other love, including those closest relationships and even your own life, seem like hatred in comparison. Now, Jesus is not instructing us to hate anybody, okay? He's basically saying the love you must have for the Lord must be so far and above all your other loves. Is that really what you want? Whoever does not... Bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus was going to die on a cross. And his followers were going to see that image of him bleeding and dying for the sake of God's will. And he was going to have these people remember this saying when they showed, when they watched Jesus hang on his own cross. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross. What is a cross? It's an instrument of death. Now, I don't believe anyone has to die physically upon a cross to follow Jesus. But we do have to die. What do we have to die to? Oh, you guys are really good. Die to self and die to sin. Every day. Every day, sin is going to knock on our door. Flesh is going to knock on our door. The whims and fancies of this world are going to knock on our door and say, follow me. Do this. Look what everyone else is doing. Look how much fun they're having. Follow me. And we're going to have to pick up our own cross and say, no, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. It is Christ who lives within me. Jesus said, is that really what you want? He says this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and consider the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Now I want you to imagine yourself building some kind of massive structure, okay? Is that something you would do on a whim? Does anyone leave here today and go, you know what, I'm going to build a massive house. Let's just go to Lowe's and get at it. No. The, the, what's that? You buy the whole store out, right? You go into massive debt. And something weird would happen. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he might not be able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why would Jesus say this? Why would he tell us to count the cost? What is Jesus not looking for? Fair weather friends. Part time. 
flakes. In one day, out the other. I love you today, Lord. I don't love you today, Lord. So he uses the analogy of building a tower. Now this is the picture of the Eiffel Tower. Isn't that great? Isn't that a glorious tower? That is the Eiffel Tower, but that's the Eiffel Tower under construction. Now I want you to imagine if the dear people of France decided to build this tower one day and ran out of everything. They ran out of manpower, they ran out of instructions, they ran out of money, and they had this little half tower there in Paris. Would anyone flock to go see a half Eiffel Tower? I don't think so. I don't think it would be the Eiffel Tower that we quite, we quite know today. And that's kind of where Jesus is going. He's saying, listen, if you begin to build this thing and you don't understand that this is going to require the remainder of your life, you will probably quit. You'll probably give up on this covenant. You'll probably say it's too hard, it's too, too difficult, it's too painful, it's too lonely, and you will end up with a half tower. And Jesus is not worthy of that, is he? Is Jesus worthy of half of our intentions? Of half of our love? Of some of our work? Of some of our devotion? Of some of our zeal? Is Jesus worthy of that after he died on the cross for our sins? Does Jesus want a sampling of us? No, he doesn't. He wants all of us. And that's what Jesus is trying to draw out here today. Now, what we've done, and what Jesus probably did that day, is drive his followers away. I can imagine these great crowds just dwindling as Jesus says every phrase. Uh, Hate your mother and father. Bear your own cross. Renounce everything that you have. You don't want a half tower, right? And for the crowd, just going, what is he talking about? That's That's not at all what I want in this relationship. Why would Jesus say that? And why do we even need the new covenant? Why can't he just stamp our hand with forgiveness and eternal life and let us go on our way? Why do we need the new covenant of love? And this is where I want to end today. Because I'm going to boil it down to one word. Assurance. Do you need assurance in this life? Do you need assurance of where you're going to go when you die? Do you need assurance of God's permanent covenantal love in your life? Do you need assurance that no matter what life throws at you, God is going to be there? Because I do. And I'm going to be honest, the new covenant of love, although it sounds magnificent, it's going to require a lot. And it has required a lot of me. I'm standing here today because I seek to abide by the new covenant of love. Not because it's easy. It's quite the contrary. It's very, very difficult. You'll have more enemies, more loneliness, more pain, more suffering following the new covenant of love than you will following the world. But guess what you would get in return? You get assurance. This is where these passages in Romans 8 should blow our mind because in Romans 8, Paul is describing the gift, the reward of the new covenant of love. And he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? My paraphrase is this. If God is for us, who cares is against us? Does it matter if man hates me? Does it matter if man abandons me? Does it matter if man doesn't understand me? If God says, I love you, I'm with you, you're mine and I'm yours. Does it matter who's against us if God is on our team? He says, he who did not spare his own son, he didn't spare him, he gave him. He 
he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When God gave us Jesus, he, number one, said, here, I'm saving you from your sins and the penalty of those sins. But he's also saying to us another message. Everything is yours. If I'm willing to give you the hardest, biggest blessing in my son, then everything that belongs to me, once you're in this covenant, belongs to you as well. Everything. Because I already gave you the hardest one. I already gave you Jesus Christ. So if I give you Jesus, if I don't spare Jesus Christ and I give him to you as your Savior, then I will give you all things. He goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it possible? Is it possible something could worm in between those two, wiggle in between God and us and, and finish this thing and ruin this thing? Shall tribulation do it? Is there a trial hard enough out there to get in the way of God's love between his people? Can distress do it? The hardships of life? Can persecution, someone attacking us? Famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Once we're in this covenant, can something come in and spoil it? Can something separate us from the great love of Christ? And the answer is this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, sometimes life is harder than death, isn't it true? Sometimes life will throw you quite a lot of curveballs. But death, nor life, nor angels, spiritual beings, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. You will have to give in the new covenant of love. You will. You will have to sacrifice in the new covenant of love. But guess what you get in return? Assurance. You get God's guarantee that he will be with you for the rest of eternity. He will be your God. He will be your protector. He will watch over you. He will guide you. He will shepherd you. He will keep you. He will sustain you. He will nourish you. And he will bring you into the kingdom of heaven for the rest of eternity. And it's what we call eternal security. And it all comes from saying yes to Jesus. Not I'll do this perfectly. None of us do that perfectly. You guys know that, right? Pastors don't do it perfectly. Pastors fall on their face in the new covenant of love. And God has to pick us up, dust us off, forgive our sins, and keep us on our way. But we get this whole thing, this assurance, this love, this security from simply saying yes to Jesus. Why do we need the new covenant of love? Because when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I need to know that God is with me and I am with God. And God has said, my name is upon this new covenant of love. If you say yes to my son, if you're willing to not only get baptized and believe, but follow the terms of this covenant, and I will help you. We talked about God's great grace. Then I will be your God, and you will be my people for the rest of eternity. I thought about this as we close today. Is this the strongest statement someone can ever make to another person? I love you. I love you. That is a very powerful statement to say to somebody. I remember the first time I said it to Janine, and I was nervous to say it because it was so big. I love you, Janine. I felt so profound for those words to come out of my mouth, and it still does when I say that to my wife and when she says it to me. That is a very profound statement. But you know why I don't think that's the most profound statement you can say? Because it can change. It can change. 
Someone can love you today and tomorrow they don't. That's not the most powerful statement somebody can say. You know what it is? I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the most powerful statement somebody could say. And God has declared it. If you say yes to my son, if you believe and are baptized and follow the terms of this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will have me for the rest of time. And God's name and God's character and God's reputation are upon that promise. That promise can never, ever give way. And to me, that's the bottom line for everything I do as a pastor. No matter what I go through, no matter what he calls me to do, God says, I will always be with you, Todd. And he says that to every single person who's a part of this new covenant. Do you need the new covenant of love? I hope you do. Here's our application. Actually, before we get there, I think this is worth it. I'm going to show you a passage from Hosea 2, and it's just what you see on the screen here. It's very short. But in Hosea, if you know the book of Hosea, it's a wonderful book. Hosea is such a wild story. He tells his prophet Hosea to do something remarkable. He says, listen, Hosea, you're my man, you're my prophet. I want you to do something for me. I want you to go marry a prostitute. I want you to marry someone called Gomer. She was a notorious prostitute, harlot, and Hosea said, I will. Okay, God. So he marries this woman, and this woman eventually becomes unfaithful to Hosea because that was her nature. She runs around with other lovers, forgets Hosea altogether, and now Hosea has a choice to forget about Gomer and find someone else to give his love to, or take her back. Well, not only does Hosea take her back, because Hosea is picturing the love of God. Not only does he take Gomer back, but he wins her back by his affection and his love. Now, she's the one that ran away. She's the one that gave her love to other people. But Hosea, because he's representing God, says this in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Every single one of us, if we're in the new covenant of love, know God's faithfulness, do we not? That not only does he forgive our sins, but when we've gone wayward, what does he do? He wins us back. Now that is an unbelievable amount of love that God has to give to win back the wayward sheep or the wayward soul. But he does it because he says, I will stand by my covenant no matter what. Are you in the new covenant of love through Jesus Christ today? I have two simple questions to ask you. Are you in the new covenant of love? If not, why not? You can enter into it today. I told you a child can enter into the love of God today, and there's nothing like the love of God, is there? Nothing. I've explored many avenues of joy and pleasure in this life, and I've never found anything like the love of God. Anything. If today is the day you need to enter into the new covenant, I encourage you, I implore you to consider what it would be like inside God's covenant of love. And number two, if you're already in, follow in Jesus until the end. Keep building that tower by God's grace, by God's strength, because there's nothing like the love of Jesus. Where else can we go? Where else can we go and find that great love? And the answer is nowhere. It's only within the precious, beautiful, strong arms of our Lord and Savior. This is the old covenant of love. There's so much more we can say about this concept, but I hope it's been encouraging to your soul. And I would have you consider today, are you in and are you willing to continue on this journey 
for Christ's sake because of his great love and assurance in your life. Can we bow in prayer? Father, this is a very big and weighty topic, and I don't know how well I've represented this today, but I thank you for your word, that you've given us access to it, that we can go and explore and search out this great covenant as many times as we want, as much as we want for the rest of our lives. And I pray and encourage that those here in this room would do just that, would realize that although we understand this covenant, there's much we still don't understand. And that we would dive into this massive ocean of God's love and realize just how many treasures are in this. Father, I pray for the souls in this room, those who may not be in the covenant of love and don't understand this Christianity thing yet, that you would guide their soul by your great light and show them the Lord Jesus Christ and their need for him. That you'd awaken their soul even today to sense that need and to place that faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But number two, I also ask for those of us who have said yes to the covenant, that you would encourage us forward and remember that we're not there yet. We have not finished our race. We have not finished building our tower to put one more hammer and one more nail and keep building this thing until the end because there's nothing like the love of God. I hope it's been an encouragement to my friends and family here today. And I pray that you'd push us forward for your great grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.